traveling, one accepts everything. Indignation stays at home. One looks, one listens, one is roused to enthusiasm by the most dreadful things because they are new. Good travelers are heartless. Elias Kanadi. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone who listened last week and the previous weeks, and I hope you've been enjoying, and I hope you'll enjoy this week's episode as well. Uh, to my fellow Americans, uh, I hope you had a very safe and fun Thanksgiving uh, weekend and break and all that good stuff. As for my international listeners, I hope your week was good as well, uh, whether you did anything uh, special in your country or not. Um, maybe your team won their World Cup match. I, I don't know. Um, but uh, let's just go ahead and get started. I think this episode might be a little bit shorter um, than the last couple just because uh, I've been traveling and I have to kind of get ready for work tomorrow. So this topic may end up going over a couple of weeks, but we'll get through as much of it as we can. Uh, so this week is a somewhat of a transitional episode. Um, we're not focusing on um, West Africa and the ancestors of today's modern West Africans as much as we're going to be focusing on kind of some neighboring groups whose descendants were living and interacting with the West African ancestors we spoke about in the last episode. Um, now at our current time frame, um, they were not just neighbors of the people we talked about in the last last couple of episodes. They were also neighbors to the peoples living uh, in the Horn of Africa and others living in the northeast of Africa, kind of towards uh, the Sinai Peninsula and the, the Levant. Um, but our, our focus this week is um, two material groups um, that are known as the Capsian and the Kiffian cultures, and on a couple of, I guess, like a macro group of people who are the ancestors of um, some of the modern-day Nilo-Saharan-speaking groups. Uh, though before I get into that, I need to point out uh, a couple of things about this Nilo-Saharan language family. Um, there's always been a lot of discussion about this kind of grouping, and especially there's been a lot of recent literature that I've been able to kind of read up on and uh, basically kind of come up with the conclusion or at least um, you know, summarizing, you know, what the modern debate is saying. It's kind of basically completely refining who is in this family and um, if it actually is a family. So um, Joseph Greenberg, who was easily the most influential linguist of um, the last uh, 75, 100 years. Um, in his language families of Africa, uh, he set up um, the macro families that basically everyone uses today. Uh, those are Afro-Asiatic, Niger-Congo, Khoisan, and Nilo-Saharan. Now, some of these classifications were more widely accepted than others. Uh, and from what I have read and kind of seen, uh, the Nilo-Saharan is probably the most controversial of these four. 
uh, by far. Um, some of the critics have called uh, the, this family um, Greenberg's Wastebasket because it was where he dumped any non-click language that didn't fit into Afro-Asiatic or, or Niger-Congo. Um, now, Greenberg himself wasn't unaware of some of the problems with his classifications, and uh, he even said in um, that Nilo-Saharan works better as kind of like a, a genetic family. Uh, rather than a language family. Uh, that said, some of the other attempts by other linguists have their own issues uh, when they attempt to kind of come up with their own systems and classifications. Specifically, there are some who tried to combine Niger-Congo and Nilo-Saharan into one gigantic family. Um, but I, I kind of, from what, I, just me, and this is me as a non-linguist, just reading it and just kind of understanding the criticisms and the explanations that these people are making. I personally favor the classifications that use Greenberg's original organization as a starting point and then refined the family by going and actually studying um, studying the languages that some criticize their inclusion into the group. Um, though actually there probably is a better method um, that is um, there's a website or, I guess, an online group. Uh, it's called Glottolog, Glottolog, G-L-O-T-T-O-L-O-G. Uh, and it is an online database that maintains research and information about lesser-known languages. Um, I think they're based out of Germany, um, one of the Max Planck schools over there. And what they do uh, for this is they essentially just list which languages um, that have not been proven to be part of the Nilo-Saharan family. They're basically saying, okay, the Nilo-Saharan family does exist, um, but you have to prove that this language belongs there. And there are some that you know people are still in the processes of anal analysis, uh, analyzing and including and of course people are going to go back to forefront all that stuff so just keep in mind that this is just kind of a general organizational thing it's not necessarily a hundred percent perfect um, but all that said let's start um, with one of the material cultures uh, in the far north of Africa with the Capsian culture um, it is named after the city of Gafsa in Tunis which is like an Arabic pronunciation or corruption of a Arabic pronunciation of the Roman city of Kapsa. Uh, its site has been found in the mountains um, in the west of what is now modern-day Morocco and as far east as Tunis. Um, and some of their artifacts have even been found outside of Spain, uh, outside of Africa in Spain and Sicily. Uh, though from what I read, these are from like one of the culture's later phases, um, and this this can be divided up to two to three phases depending on the archaeologist and anthropologist you talk to, and um, uh, it's possible that this culture um, could have lasted until like the mid two thousands BCE, um, and it would have it would have begun a little after 9000 BCE. So it, it's been around for a while, and it will last for a while, even if it's not fully to 2000 BC. 
Um, now, at 8,000 BC, the environment is similar to what is to what it is today. Uh, you know, very temperate Mediterranean climate, but it would get a little bit more rainfall. It would be wetter. Um, there are probably a lot of um, kind of Mediterranean forests on and around um, the mountains of these places. Um, now, materially, uh, in addition to their you know their stonework. Uh, they used seashells and ostrich eggs as jewelry. Um, they painted rocks with ochre, which is not at all unique. A lot of groups are doing that, but they do have their own artistic style. Um, they have also seemed to have the habit of removing incisors from skeletons um, and possibly using those as, you know, jewelry or body modification um, and I couldn't find out if that was just from humans or all animals with them um, if they maybe did it with enemies or family members you know just as a token who knows um, but because of where they lived they have a much more diverse diet than their neighbors kind of to the south uh, they're on an ectone which is a place where like multiple uh, environments come together. They're on the sea, they're in the mountains, they're close enough to the plains and hills, you know, to the south that they could, you know, get some different kinds of food. So they would have access to regional um, animals like snails that you probably couldn't get anywhere, I don't think anywhere else in Africa. Um, now this fact might be toward the later end of their time frame, but there is also evidence that they are trading for domesticated goats that you would normally find in more northerly climes. Um, but again, that's probably at the later time period. I think at 8,000 BC, there's probably not too much goat, um, you know, in the region that could be traded. Um, I think though by 6,000 BC, yeah, there's, there's probably a lot more groups with, uh, goats and ungulates to trade. The final thing we need to discuss about this group is who these people are related to and this matter is debated um, as far as I can see and this is for recent stuff within the last two to three years uh, this is still the case there has been no DNA evidence that I've seen that this group uh, has been that we've been able to extract from the skeletal remains of these group this groups and these people so um, I guess that's basically the only thing we can kind of really go on uh, is kind of the way their skeleton looks. Uh, there are still slight differences in Homo sapiens skeletons from region to region. But again, that's just slight stuff and there's a lot of debate open for that because it can be a somewhat subjective matter. Uh, so this group's skeleton remains appear to be either related to uh, the Homo sapiens of the Iberian pen uh, Peninsula. Um, or from migrants from the Middle East that came along the coast. Uh, so those are the two mostly accepted uh, uh, examples of who these people are. Um, so you know they're they're maybe the the Proto Berber or uh, people. Um, another theory is that they're a native group of Africans, whose uh, you know distant cousins had crossed over into Iberia, and that they became basically the next door neighbors of the remaining Capsian group uh, for a while. 
And again, I've seen no DNA evidence from peoples at this time frame from this cultural. So as far as I know, this is all based on skeletal features and artifacts. Uh, I would be inclined to think that they are related to migrants from the Middle East, but I don't doubt that they traded with both, you know, their Iberian and Southern neighbors. I don't doubt that they had other types of connections, not just economic, but uh, social, social, cultural, um, genetic, uh, and probably conflict related to uh, just standard, you know, group stuff. But I don't think it was necessarily all violent. Uh, and I don't necessarily think it was, you know, you know, I don't think this group is as, you know, limited in terms of being one or the other. I think there's probably a little bit of a mix between a all three of these options, but I'm going to say they're mainly made up from the Middle Eastern uh, migrants coming into the region along the coast for now until we get some more evidence. The second material culture we're going to get into is the Kiffian. Um, these people kind of ranged across uh, Niger, Algeria, Libya, Chad and possibly in Sudan and Mali. Uh, they were big game hunters who you know, liked to hunt animals that were near uh, the lakes and rivers of the region. Um, they've been found, um, or they found large bones buried in their sites or in their, you know, kind of locations. Uh, and these things like um, wildebeest, water buffalo, um, I think some elephant bones as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, now, they are not a culture that lasts for an especially long time, um, at least compared to the Capsian, who's a very close neighbor. And some of those groups we talked about in Europe at the 10,000 BC mark. Um, but they fit perfectly in this time frame that we're currently in now, uh, between 8,000 and 6,000 BCE. Well, unfortunately, I couldn't find much else ab much else out about these people's artifacts that kind of separated them from others, uh, except they did did appear to use fish hooks and harpoons in those rivers, so they're more hunter fishers. Um, they also had pottery in their later graves and sites, um, so perhaps they were trading with the people of Anjogu, or maybe they learned to make pottery from them or had taken it from a site where the two people had like co-occupied at different times. Possibly they raided for it or, you know, fought for it, or it was a, you know, a war prize, something along those lines. Um, uh, maybe they're the ones who made it. We don't know. Uh, I don't think that this is the case though, as there is no evidence of them eating or practicing uh, advanced horticulture or even primitive agriculture. There is again some, uh, you know, there is kind of a. There's usually evidence of people eating wild grasses before they develop their pottery, um, and there's again, I think these people don't kind of show that transitionary period. They just have, eventually, they get pottery from some other source. Um, but who knows? Again, we're, we're obviously limited by the amount of artifacts we could find. Now, uh, there is again a debate on who these people are related to. Um, unfortunately, their main burial site at 
uh, sorry, Bo Barrow is now a desert, and I don't think we have found any usable DNA from any skeletal remains there. Uh, there are those that think they're related to the Capsian, and thus possibly Iberian or Middle Eastern, and then there are those that uh, believe they are Sub-Saharan African, either Niger Congo or Nilo-Saharan speakers. Um, I personally think they're related to a Nilo-Saharan group. Uh, this is because the Kiffian skeletons are taller on average, around six feet or higher. Uh, this is in line with some modern-day Nilotic people who are on average like the tallest ethnic group in the world. Um, now, uh, when this culture kind of ends, uh, it moved out of the region at around 6000 BC because it was at that point the Sahara begins the slow shift back to a desert environment. And while it will take a while, uh, this deeper interior parts of the region was probably the first seeing the heaviest effects of this change. Um, now what happened to these people is not known. Uh, some think they migrated east back toward like the Nilo-Saharan heartlands, or perhaps they moved south and became closer neighbors of the Niger-Congo groups. Perhaps they did broke and or did both and broke into separate branches. Um, and whatever the exact case, um, I should probably go ahead and try to touch on the Nilo-Saharans now. So at the start of our time frame, time frame 8000 BCE, uh, they are as far west probably as Mali and Algeria. Uh, they would have been uh, spread out basically from the Nile Valley in what is today uh, kind of the south of the Sudan. South Sudan, or even maybe even further south, uh, as far as Lake Victoria, uh, hence the term Nilo-Saharan. Uh, they were, of course, living the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, with some groups maybe practicing a little bit more fishing than others. Um, and they, again, their Western groups would be interacting very closely with um, the North African Capsian groups, or the future sub-Saharan West Africans uh, that we discussed last time. There's probably a lot of interaction, both peaceful and non-peaceful, uh, between these groups. Um, but uh, at this point, there is evidence that some of these groups are beginning to experiment with a different type of uh, food economy. Uh, they're not just hunting and gathering, but they are beginning to experiment with animal handling and pastoralism. Uh, this is in contrast with like the western fringes uh, of the Saharan region uh, who have started to experiment with horticultural, which of course will lead them to agriculture. Although I think they are doing their own experiment with experimentation with uh, horticulture with some of their local crops. Uh, I think things like sorghum, which is uh, more of a grass than like a cereal grain, but they are, you know, generally related. Um, at several archaeological sites um, in places that overlap with where you would expect to find these peoples, um, you they have found bones of uh, wild African cattle and even what could be pens that contain the remains of wild 
Barbary sheep. Now, those sheep were never domesticated, or at least uh, they weren't domesticated long enough to change the skeletons of those that we have found at these kind of sites. Um, so, at this point, we're kind of at a place where there isn't really anything specific with these peoples um, that make them stand out just yet. They're very similar to their West African neighbors in terms of lifestyle and environments. Um, but again, they are starting to experiment with... They're, both of these groups are experimenting with different modes of living than hunting and gathering. They're trying to expand their resources. Um, but this is a very good time to talk about a site that is very important in Africa as a whole, at least northern Africa. And this site is called Napta Playa. Napta Playa is located in the very far south of modern-day Egypt. Uh, it's not too far off from uh, the Nile. It's in a what is now a kind of a, uh, a dried-up basin. But this was once like an inland like drainage basin. Um, it's in the Nubian Desert. It's it's like a hundred or so kilometers west of uh, Abu Simbel, which is like one of the big like um, southern uh, Egyptian um, sites for like um, where they buried pharaohs and stuff. Like uh, if you've ever seen like the four seated pharaohs, like like carved into the rock, that's Abu Simbel. And of course, that's a place we'll touch on a lot much later. Um, but this is kind of a, it's considered part of the, like an Egyptian Neolithic period. Uh, and it's kind of like in the middle of our time frame. It's like 7,500 7, to 7,000. Uh, or no, 7, yeah, 7,500 to 7,000 BCE. Um, and this site has a couple of unique features. It shows that it's been inhabited several times during, uh, you know, the both wet and dry periods. Uh, of course, being near the Nile, it, this, this region, of course, is better for supporting life than others. It also shows evidence of kind of a, a mixing of different um different things. Uh, again, this is one of those sites where they found uh, the pins for the wild barberry sheep. Um, there is a, you know, early ceramics, which is kind of uh, adorned with, you know, some complicated patterns, uh, but they are unique patterns, and their patterns not found in places uh, further north from, say, the Middle East. And this is important because uh, there's a lot of debate about who, you know, who the Egyptians were um, and where they, they came from. So there is a lot of evidence um, that has been found that kind of shows that a lot of the grains and animals that the Egyptians are growing and are going to become such an important part of their economy come from, you know, places in the Middle East, the Fertile Crescent. Uh, and this has led a lot of people to think, well, you know, that means that the Egyptians were probably, you know, coming directly from, 
you know, the Middle East, the Sinai, and establishing their communities up and down the river. However, um, you know, not to Playa, uh, you know, it does show that there is some overlap, but there are a lot of uh, older sites that are just made up of African animals. Um, and there is uh, other sites that are not too far away that kind of have some other things that you might you might consider uh, very Egyptian. There are elements of like a cattle or cow cult um, kind of laid out in some similar styles to some like early Egyptian temples. Um, and this has led to kind of a reimagining of what Egyptian culture may have been, um, at least more recently. Uh, there's this idea now that the material culture maybe came from the Middle East, whereas the um, the maybe more religious aspects came from possibly just the native Africans. Um, that is a matter of debate, but it is you know it is one that has started to grow in popularity. Um, that being said, you know it, it's a lot to kind of break down. Um, there are going to be some cases in this area that we'll get into in our next time frame where we talk about mummification, how that happened, where that came from. Uh, they have found very old um, black mummies in North Africa in places that are, you know, after this time frame, it's going to be when the region starts desertification. And there, these mummies are much more advanced than what the Egyptians were doing at the same time. Uh, so there is possibly evidence that uh, some of the uh, techniques that they use to um, mummify are eventually passed on by some Nilo-Saharan groups or uh, at least black African um, groups to the uh, Proto-Egyptians. Um, and we'll get into this more later, but uh, what I think this is kind of showing is that there's a lot of mixing in this region in terms of cultural and linguistic, um, you know, just culture and linguistics, basically. And I think that this is not just a one-way street. I don't think that the, um, that the, you know, that the black Africans are giving Egyptians their religion. Um, we already talked about how there's evidence of uh, animal or at least the start of animal domestication. But then this just stops for a time. And I think it's because the material culture is being imported from the Near East. Um, I think these people are exchanging, hey, you guys are already you know, starting to work with these animals, but you know, we already have them. You know, and I think that probably caused, um, basically it, it stopped the domestication of some of the local uh, fauna and gave like these nilotic groups you know basically a ready-made source of of um, meat and things that they are going to take and develop into something that's all their own um, the nilo-saharan groups are very um, prolific pastoralists uh, cows become extremely important to these groups. Cattle cultural, cattle raiding, uh, you know, religious festivals of cow jumping or bull jumping is very important to a lot of these people. And this is very widespread 
among the Nile Valley. This is not just in Egypt. This is in places far to the south of Egypt. So I think you're starting to see a mix up uh, at this point where these two disparate groups are going to kind of join together, uh, at least um, at least uh, economically, if not culturally. I think the culture is going to progress. Uh, there's definitely going to be a period of, um, you know, disunity before they unify. Um, and that's going to be very important to early Egyptian history. We're going to talk about upper and lower Egypt. Uh, but this, this shows that uh, humans at this point, no doubt that they were extremely, um, extremely capable of committing violence with each other. They're also equally capable of communicating and trading and exchanging ideas. Um, but um, that's just me probably getting a little philosophical and I may not be quite as coherent as I'd like to be. It is getting a little late here. Um, but yeah, so I think, just to kind of summarize again, in North Africa you see a large amount of uh, cultural transmission between different groups uh, because as this time frame goes on from 8,000 to 7,000 to 6,000 at the end of this period you're going to start to see the Sahara start to get less and less rain uh, rivers and lakes are going to start to shrink and then disappear before these peoples are kind of all uh, cut off from each other now there's still going to be some groups that are in communication with each other. And um, I will say that the desertification of the Sahara never fully isolates the sub-Saharan West, West Africans from the rest of the north. Um, like, they could still get up to places in, you know, what is now Morocco because of some inventions we'll talk about later. But it's never going to be quite as open and um, easy to travel as it is in this point in time until much, much later. Um, so that is something to keep in mind. Uh, so this might be considered something of a, of a golden age, um, for lack of a better term, at least for humans living in this region. You've got a lot of wide open spaces. There's enough room and I'm sure while game to hunt, there is, you know, uh, basically kind of a cultural growth for a number of these groups and some of these groups are going to be able to meet up with you know their neighbors once the environment changes and they're going to start working together um, maybe not like maybe not full coll uh, collaboration but they're definitely going to be easier and easier to exchange ideas um, and this is something that you're also going to get into in other regions uh, there's going to be a bigger shift from hunter and gatherers, though they're going to hang around for a little while longer. They're going to trade their goods and crafts for as long as they can before uh, they're just outproduced and they either have to adapt or die out. So you're going to have the hunter gatherers who are slowly uh, but surely begin to see their numbers uh, go down and dwindle. Uh, but before that, you will see the rise of agricultural groups and pastoralists. Uh, and 
with the agricultural groups and some of the pastoralists and even the hunter-gatherers, you're going to start to see a rise in sedentism. There's going to be less and less movement uh, in this region as well as others, but um, in this region, I think that's mostly going to be down due to the environment changing um, because in other parts of Africa, you know, uh, pastoralism, nomadism is still fairly prevalent in a lot of places. So it's just something to keep in mind as we go back and forth to this region and we go forward in time. Um, I will be returning to North Africa to, to kind of talk about who from the Middle East is entering into the region, what they're bringing with them for sure. And uh, again, we'll get into more of what they may be picking up from the locals. Um, as for next week, um, yeah, I think I think now, yeah, we've covered everything of important, at least at this point, for um, West and North Africa. Um, next week, I'm going to follow up with the East Africans, um, specifically the Horn of Africa region, uh, what they're doing and how they're beginning to change their society, what plants and animals they're beginning to experiment with. Um, in their own kind of domestication events. Um, and then, of course, we'll hit over to uh, the Middle East, and that will, again, tie us back into um, the Nile Delta and uh, kind of what is now modern-day Egypt. But we're making good progress. Um, so uh, this is the final episode of November. We'll have... Let's see, we'll have one, two, three, four. Yeah, we'll have four in December, it looks like. Um, I plan to do one every week for December. I might miss either the 26th or the 2nd of January, one of those two days. I don't know that 100%, but it's a possibility. I'm going to have to try to make sure of my calendar and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but yeah. I'd like to thank everyone for listening, um, and I hope you enjoy, and please, if you have any feedback or questions, do not hesitate to reach out to me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can also reach me via direct messages at Twitter, and if um, any of the websites you can find my podcast on, I think a couple of them have direct messaging options, but if not, again, just reach out to me at those other two places. Uh, and yeah, I'd love to hear from you, but, uh, thank you all. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Goodbye.